Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is the second part of episode 24, which was all about Warhammer fantasy role-playing, Woofrup. And it includes all the bits that didn't quite fit into the first part. It's not a supplement, it's more of a director's cut of an old favourite. The Grognard Files is brought to you by the Armchair Adventurers, a group of gamers who used to be active in the early to late 80s and then went into a deep freeze and have defrosted into a whole new world. Thank you to everyone who's been sharing their experiences of playing Warhammer back in the day and today, and we're always very grateful for feedback and hearing your stories. We've had another iTunes review, which is great because it alerts the mind slaves of Apple that we still exist, and they'll send their algorithms mithering some poor, unsuspecting soul. This one is from Alistair D. I started listening to the Grognard Files back in July and I liked it so much that I've listened to nothing else on my commutes to and from work. Dirk and Blythe are great company with their ready wit and guiding hand down memory lane. As an RPGer back in the day this podcast has really connected with me. And the hosts along with Ed and the Daily Dwarf feel like old friends. They're forward-thinking too, embracing the new as well as the old, prompting me to do the same. Thanks, lads. If you're ever in the northeast of England, let me know. The first round is on me. Thanks for that, Alistair, and thanks for the offer of beer. Beer is always appreciated. Graeme Davis returns to this episode. He's had a long career as an RPG writer, and in The Games Master Screen, he talks about some of its highlights. I've done links in the show notes if you want to explore some of the projects he mentions for yourself. His blog is also a good source of links to his back catalogue. At Daily Dwarf from Twitter and Armchair Adventurer Extraordinaire has been burning the midnight oil once again, looking at the back issues of White Dwarf to study some of the great Wolfrup adventures that appeared in the magazine. Since the last podcast, Blythe and I have finally had a couple of games thanks to Gaz from the Smart Party who took us on a tour of the Volksfest at Mittelberg to enjoy Lips and Snout Sausage and let's face it, I've had worse. Gaz used the new 4th edition rules from Pubicle 7 and we had a tremendous time scratching the surface of nobility to unleash chaos. We've also played the 1st edition with Asaka So from Twitter More about that next time. In this episode, we open the box on Warhammer and try and work out why we've never played it and how we can fit it into our repertoire now that there's so much stuff. I'll be back at the end to critically injure new patrons. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Games Master Screen! Welcome to the Games Master Screen. I'm just going to put this uh, screen between me and Graeme Davis. Uh, welcome back, Graeme. Hi, thanks for having me again. 
Okay, so I'm going to put this. Now, this is a, a Vampire the Masquerade screen. I think you had some involvement in uh, Vampire in the early days, didn't you? I did, yes. Yes, after... Uh, well, when I was thinking of uh, of leaving Games Workshop, Ken Rolston, who'd done some writing, including um, Something Rotten in Kislev for the Enemy Women campaign, he put me in touch with this young fellow called Mark Reinhagen in the States who had this revolutionary idea of a game where all the players are vampires. We talked a little bit, and after I moved to the States a few months later, I ended up uh, seeing and commenting on some initial drafts of the of the rules and uh, contributing to some of the core books and editing some of the others. Uh, in short, I was uh, involved in just about everything that came out in the first couple of years for uh, in one way or another. And uh, in fact, my very first Gen Con, 1991, I was a guest of, uh, of White Wolf when they launched Vampire. I know that you said that, that you uh, were disappointed, perhaps, in the direction that it took. It never, that it went into the factions rather than the nastiness of being a, a vampire. Is that right? The particular, everybody has their own particular view of vampires and expectations of vampire fiction and games and, and what have you. I really like the... Uh, the subtitle of, uh, of Vampire is a storytelling game of personal horror. And they had this really nice humanity mechanic so that uh, what you did as a vampire affected your humanity and you had to, to stay at least somewhat human because if your humanity uh, reached zero, you became entirely monstrous and, uh, and an NPC. I was very interested in the uh, in the psychology of, of vampirism, finding yourself being a vampire, confronting the uh, the moral and psychological challenges. That was a part of the early products, but then um, as they developed the different clans and factions and politics and and so on, and and I think as well as uh, as Anne Rice became more mainstream and the the nineties vampire took over from the the previous generation of vampires and an element of soap opera really uh, kind of pervaded the whole genre which persists to this day. I found that a, a, a little less interesting and uh, and challenging. But I must say, having seen a, a copy of the uh, the new I think it's fifth edition Vampire the Masquerade. It looks promising. There's a there's a lot of uh, new mechanics and stuff. Not everybody's going to like it. Some people have already been shocked by some of the content. But for those who want to explore the uh, the moral and psychological aspects and what that does to a person, it's all there in those rules for you to use. So uh, I'm uh, I'm quite heartened by that. Yeah, bring back some blood into it. That's good. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna roll on this table. I've got uh, a table in front of me that's got some highlights. Uh, from your long and uh, uh, prolific career uh, for us to talk about. Okay, okay. so first up, I'm going to roll this apparently at random. Here we go. And it's number three. And this is is a subject close to my heart. It's Imagine and your Mm. contribution to Imagine magazine. So we had uh, Paul... Coburn on the uh, on the Grog Pod in the past, and he, he he said that you were a stalwart at the heart of uh, Imagine. You know, he he thought it would be impossible to produce Imagine without you uh, being part of it. So that must be oh, gratifying. Kind of <laughs> and um, the 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 other the other point is that it, your contributions to Imagine had such an influence on my games. What you what you used to do is um, put a lot of historical background stuff that I wasn't aware of, and I used to pepper it into my game. So um, 
How did it, how did you feel that? Because you, you really did uh, produce some great essays on historical background uh, for for Imagine. Well, thank you. Um, my involvement with Imagine started before it came out, actually, because there was an ad in White Dwarf for um, an editor for a new magazine for TSR UK, uh, which, of course, was the job Paul Coburn got. Uh, I applied for that. Um, I don't think I've told anybody that before. Ah. But I was I was at college. I was doing postgrad work, and uh, for various reasons, I was um, getting a, a little jaded with uh, academia in general. And uh, I was looking around and I thought, well, you know, um, I'm spending most of my time playing games as it is. Uh, I wonder if I could make a living of it. And so I applied when this uh, job became a, a when this ad came out and uh, didn't get it. But um, then I saw the first issue of Imagine. I'd already written a few things for White Dwarf by that time. So I, I wrote asking, uh, you know, what they wanted in the way of uh, contributors. Uh, Paul wrote me a very nice letter back. Two things really sealed the deal for me. Uh, one was that they had themes to their issues. I wasn't just shooting in the dark like I was with White Dwarf, sending articles in and hoping they liked them, but that I, I had something to, to, to guide me and uh, also to, to take ideas from. The second was they paid twice as much. They paid tuppence a word instead of a penny. Um, <laughs> anyway, over the years, uh, two and a half, three years that uh, Imagine was published, yeah, I, I became... Quite a regular. Paul would tell me what uh, the uh, the theme of a certain issue was. I'd come up with uh, usually four or five ideas. He'd pick his favourite. Occasionally, like the Far East issue, I, I got three articles in the same same issue of the magazine, which was uh, that, that, that was that uh, issue in particular um, had a tremendous influence on um, how I played games. I think I think it was through that, and I should thank you for that. Is I discovered uh, Kurosawa, and uh, I just wanted to thank you for that. Uh, because I, I it's, I've turned into uh, a Japanophile uh, ever since then. Oh well, thanks. I mean, the, Japan was everywhere in the eighties. You know, there was um, the Shogun miniseries. There was uh, Kurosawa brought out Kagemusha and Ran, uh, two fantastic and, and visually ravishing movies. There was uh, all the uh, the new romantics with Japanese writing on their T-shirts. And um, uh, my girlfriend at the time had one of those, and uh, walking around around Durham, she came upon a coach full of uh, Japanese tourists who looked at her shirt and started giggling. Uh, after some questioning, she was able to find out that the uh, the writing on her T-shirt actually said, I take in laundry. So beware, <laughs> beware, wearing anything with writing on that you can't read. Yeah. And and then, of course, in, uh, in the gaming world, we had Bushido, which was the first one. Uh, the first Japanese role-playing game, which really sort of opened my eyes to the possibilities of, of historical role-playing and role-playing as a tool to explore other times and cultures. Um, and then AD&D Oriental Adventures came out, RuneQuest Land of Ninja, GURPS Japan. And it was, uh, yeah, if you weren't there in the 80s, boys and girls, it was a real thing. You know, the the fascination with Japan and Japanese culture was uh, was everywhere. Just before we move to the next thing on the table, just thank you for everything you did for Imagine because it was tremendously influential so let me roll again uh, this time it's four and it's related actually so historical role-playing source books that you did for GURPS you know one of the things that Imagine did for me with their uh, their themed issues was uh, allowed me to, to leverage my uh, 
what I'd learned at college uh, studying archaeology and ancient history. And uh, so when I left Games Workshop to become uh, full-time freelance, one of the first things I did was uh, pitch some uh, historical source books to other publishers. The first one I signed was uh, Gerb's Vikings. Here's a, a, a little bit of trivia for you. Steve Jackson of Steve Jackson Games who is, of course, different from the Steve Jackson of fighting fantasy. He's a member of the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronism, and his, his character in there is, is a Viking, and he's always been fascinated by Viking culture and history and stuff. So uh, on the one hand, this was an easy sell, but on the other hand, uh, the manuscript was viewed with quite a critical eye, and uh, he had a, a lot of comments, and between us, uh, we made GURPS Vikings uh, what it was. And when that was successful, they were looking for someone to do one on medieval England, which I did. At the same time, or slightly earlier, TSR had been putting out uh, the HR historical reference series for AD&D. Uh, the first one was Vikings. The second one, I think, was Charlemagne's Paladins. I'm not sure. But anyway, I pitched them one on the, Kel uh, the Celts. So I got to write that one as well. And since then, GURPS Vikings and Middle Ages 1, as it was called, became, went into second editions, which uh, I rewrote and expanded. Uh, I've worked on various other historical bits and bobs ever since. Um, the GURPS uh, uh, source books remain very collectible, don't they? And I think um, Robin D. Laws uh, recommends that you just uh, close your eyes and pull two uh, source books off the shelf and uh, create an adventure from uh, merging the two. That's not a bad idea. And that's a pretty good idea from a man who has very few bad ideas. And yeah, uh, yeah but he's right. There, uh, you know, even if you don't play GURPS, the uh, the amount of information in them and the way it's presented uh, make them great references and very digestible. You can, uh, yeah, you can draw a lot of uh, inspiration from them. I'm going to uh, start work on my uh, Vikings in medieval England campaign as, as soon as we finish. So, okay. Uh, I've rolled uh, a seven, and that's mm -hmm. uh, the creatures of Freeport. Oh yes, that's going back a bit. Yes, when uh, when Green Ronin brought out their uh, their Freeport uh, setting uh, for D twenty, I was absolutely fascinated. It was uh, it was a nice blend of two genres it reminded me in a way of, of shadow run way back when how that was the first sort of genre blending game which took a cyberpunk which was moderately fashionable at the time and threw fantasy races in there at first it looked as if they just didn't care but then when you read the background it made perfect sense and, and freeport um a nice blend of genres fantasy plus pirates you can't really lose with that and also as it happened it was very similar to something i'd been hoping to do for uh, for warhammer fantasy roleplay uh which never came to pass some of the doomstones adventures and maybe a couple of other things that i worked on for flame i put in seeded little mentions of a town called Sakotra, a pirate port somewhere way past the border princes down to the southeast uh, a lawless place and where uh, you know men and orcs uh, tolerated each other and all that aside um, Freeport just seemed very interesting I got the source book and read it through and um, I'd been talking to uh, to Chris Primus of, uh, of Green Ronin first I did an adventure collection called Tales of Freeport 
some of it was good and some of it wasn't so good. Anyway, you can find out online and make your own mind up. Uh, but Creatures of Freeport was something quite dear to my heart. Uh, in the first place, because I got to work with uh, Keith Baker, uh, a game designer I'd known for, for some time. I'd actually worked with in two different companies um, in video games. And he went on to create uh, the Eberron setting for, uh, for D&D. Uh, we collaborated on this. We've been looking for a project to work on together. And one of the things I wanted to do was to expand what a monster description was. You know, instead of like two paragraphs of text and a stat block and a picture, include things like um, if you make your uh, your background law, your scholarship role, what do you know about this thing? Um, after you've killed it, uh, what bits are useful to alchemists and wizards? Uh, and how much are they worth? What sort of tactics does this creature employ in an encounter? How does its mind work? What does it do? Also, because I always like to do this, three or four little adventure seats just to inspire you to, to use the thing. So with that expanded setting, uh, uh, expanded format rather, uh, a limited number of monsters, uh, Keith and I produced Creatures of Freeport and I was, I've always been very pleased with it. I, I, I'm not. I wasn't aware of that supplement, and it sounds right up my street because, like you, uh, part of my uh, love of role playing came out of watching the Harryhausen movies, and uh, monsters have always, for me, been um, key to uh, role playing games. And I never think there's enough. Uh, attention really given to monsters that's right you know if it's just a, a box with a bunch of numbers and you knock it down it's not very interesting whereas if you know where it comes from why it's there how it works um, you can set up far more interesting and challenging encounters as a GM and if there's the information's available to a, a player character like you know okay I make my scholarship role uh, what do I know about this thing um, it just makes everything so much more dimensional and creates a, a, a feeling of reality in the world. Well, it's definitely going on my wish list, that. Thanks for that, Graham. I'm going to uh, roll again. Uh, and I've got eight this time. And it's Osprey Adventures and Dark Osprey. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, Round about 2011 to 2016, I think it was, Osprey did a very, very bold thing. Of course, everybody knows them for their uh, their military history books. And, uh, you know, if you want to know what colour the fly buttons are on every regiment that fought at Waterloo, uh, they're the people to tell you. Under the, the leadership of uh, a guy called Joseph McCulloch, they, uh, they expanded into a, a more fantasy direction. Osprey Adventures was a division they launched with two product lines in it. Uh, one was called Myth and Folklore, Myth and Legend, rather. Really trying to take a chunk, I think, out of the time-life market. You know, it was high-quality books on mythology with gorgeous illustrations, as you uh, would rely on from Osprey. And they hired me to write two books. I did one about Thor and one about Theseus and the Minotaur and had a great time doing both of those. And they, uh, the, the other, the rest of that line is, is fantastic as well. They've covered, you know, Hercules, obviously Jason and the Argonauts, um, Odin, dragon slayers from all kinds of mythology everywhere, King Arthur, um, lots and lots of stuff. If you're a mythology fan and, uh, uh, I can't think of any better place to find a, 
a, a quick but detailed um, and very uh, very usable overview of a particular character or mythology, uh, accompanied by just fantastic illustrations culled from the uh, the image libraries of the world, and also uh, including probably five or six or eight plates per book, uh, completely original, done by some really great artists. The other uh, line under the uh, Osprey Adventures uh, brand was called Dark Osprey. And this is uh, far more uh, dark and fantastical and uh, uh, possibly of more interest to, to gamers. The first book in there was called uh, Zombies, A Hunter's Guide. Uh, Joe wrote it himself. And it was this fictional history of zombie wars, and uh, it set up a, a specialist anti-zombie unit of the U.S. Army and uh, examined other countries and tactics, and uh, it was really fun. I wrote one on werewolves that uh, I, I borrowed his specialist anti-supernatural uh, uh, special forces uh, regiment for that and um, divided the werewolves into, into five categories uh, according to various uh, qualities that I came across culling the uh, the literature, the movies, the medieval trials and all of that. Um, and uh, that was a lot of fun. I also wrote a book on uh, Templar conspiracies for, for that line, putting together every Templar conspiracy I could find from, you know, the Holy Blood to the Holy Grail and the Holy Grail to uh, whatever all else is going on to... Uh, they've cropped up in so many movies and books, it's, it's impossible to list them all. But uh, I put together everything I could find and then constructed a, 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 an overarching fiction so that uh, everything could be true at once. And then f the final title I did for them was on the Nazi moon base. Which, uh, <laughs> Brilliant. That's right. Um, I, I couldn't resist having a crack at Iron Sky because their base was in the, uh, in the form of a swastika, which, of course, is one of the least efficient designs for getting from one end of a building to another. <laughs> and having it on the dark side of the moon meant you couldn't actually see the Earth, much less bombard it or plan to invade it. Anyway, I, I put in a, 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 had a lot of fun doing that. I, I culled all the, uh, the research on uh, Nazi UFOs and uh, all of that. Um, put in a, a couple of sly references to Captain America and Castle Wolfenstein and uh, various other bits and bobs and uh, and that was a lot of fun too um, Kenneth Haidt whose name you probably know uh, did a great companion volume on the Nazi occult and between the two of them you could uh, derive a, a very nice uh, campaign for uh, Actum Cthulhu or uh, any other sort of weird war. Delta Green, that kind of thing, yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh. And, and are they still in print, uh, Graham? Um, they are still in print. Um, they haven't produced any new titles for a while, sadly, as Frostgrave has taken off in a big way and demands a lot of support. And they're putting out a, a lot of little um, one-off games. Gaslands, a vehicle combat game, which uh, if you if you remember Dark Future from Games Workshop or Car Wars from Steve Jackson Games, it's similar to that. Uh, and one of my favourites is a skirmish game called Of Gods and Mortals, where you can uh, it's a mythological game and you base your warband on having a, a god as a leader and mythical heroes as uh, elite troops and then more historical troops as the the bulk of the warband. I'm I'm building an ancient Egyptian one as we speak. That sounds great. Well, last not least on the on the table, 
Number one, it's uh, classic fiction anthologies. Right, yes, this is something I've only recently gotten into. Listen to me, gotten. I've been in America too long. <laughs> Um, uh, around about 2008 with a, a role-playing game called Colonial Gothic, which uh, comes from a small publisher in Chicago called Rogue Games. You may or may not have heard of it. It's uh, set during the uh, American Revolution and it's a sort of blend of the television series Sleepy Hollow and movies like National Treasure and the, uh, the Johnny Depp Sleepy Hollow film. It's the struggle for American independence plus supernatural scheming Freemasons, wizards, Native American shamans, monsters from folklore, and uh, it, it's a lot of fun, and I was uh, very intrigued by it, and I, I knew the uh, author, Richard E. Aurea, because he was a long-time Warhammer fan, and we'd actually met on the, the Hogshead publishing booth in, uh, at Gen Con years ago. So I, I did a few things for, for them along the way, and one of my great plans was to, uh, was to introduce a fiction line, and as part of that, I started researching the uh, copyright-free, because that's the other meaning of classic, folks, um, <laughs> the, uh, the copyright-free fiction of the era and uh, shortlisted it. When I uh, parted ways with Rogue Games, quite amicably, but despite all our efforts, the, the game never really sort of achieved critical mass. It's still going and it's still very good and has a small but vocal fan base. I won't say anything against it. But anyway, I took this idea. Then a, a strange sort of coincidence happened. Are you grognard enough to know the name Lawrence Schick? He wrote uh, a lot of D&D stuff in the 80s. Yes. Um, I worked with him in one video games company, and uh, he's now the law master for, uh, I think it's the Elder Scrolls. And he's a big musketeer fan big fan of musketeers and swashbucklers. In fact, he taught himself French so that he could read the three musketeers in the original. And he is now undertaking the massive task of, of translating not just that, but all the other musketeer stories, and there's a lot of them, for the first time in a hundred years in a complete translation into English with, you know, modern English that reflects the energy of, uh, of Alexandre Dumas' original prose rather than being rather stuffy Victorian English that we're used to seeing. As part of that, to sort of get a toe in the water with a publisher, he put together a, a thing called The Big Book of Swashbuckling Adventure, which is a fantastic collection of uh, classic public domain uh, swashbuckling stories. There's the very first ever Zorro story in there. Uh, there's Captain Blood. There's the Scarlet Pimpernel. There's all your favourites. Uh, so I, I emailed him and said, how did you pull this off? Because I've got something similar here. So he put me in touch with his agent, who put me in touch with his publisher. And the result was a book that came out um, in hardback about this time last year and has just come out in paperback called Colonial Horrors. And as I researched these stories, it, it occurred to me that the colonial era, you know, with all the witch trials and the Puritans and the... Uh, the sort of stifling nature of the religion, the unknown nature of the dark and dangerous woods outside, uh, everything, all the crumbling buildings that you read about in Lovecraft, that's really the native soil of American Gothic fiction in the same way that the crumbling castles and monasteries of Europe are the, uh, the native soil of the European Gothic fiction. It's interesting that you say that because uh, there has been a, a bit of a resurgence in... Um movies isn't there in that vein of uh, colonial horror i'm thinking of uh, mm -hmm. films like the with the witch and that's uh, right yeah, yeah it's a it's a particular brand of american folk horror 
that that is it is different it differs in atmosphere and mood than you would get in um, british uh, folk horror definitely and you're right to call it a brand i think it's it's sort of iconic you know when you see the the colonial people uh and the village and the uh hear the uh, the puritan elder start to speak you know exactly what you're in for uh, the upshot is that uh, early next year I've got another anthology coming out called More Deadly Than the Male. It's um, early pioneering women writers of horror. Got Mary Shelley, obviously, and uh, some quite unexpected ones like Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. She also wrote some horror stories. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a very interesting journey just researching uh, not just the stories themselves, but the history of the uh, of horror fiction, the the particular contribution that uh, that women have made to it, and how that was distinct from when men write horror. That's uh, I'm going to look out for those. That, that that's great, Graham. Hear what your opinion is of this renaissance of uh, Wolfruff in the context of RuneQuest uh, being uh, reprinted. Where do you think this comes from and uh, how do you feel about um, the current state of play for the hobby? I'm quite optimistic. I was at Gen Con this year. There's a an award called the Diana Jones Award. And for those who don't know about it, it's something that is an informal sort of a thing awarded by people from within the industry in various categories for whoever has... Uh, been the most influential in uh, expanding the hobby and uh, furthering the art and craft over the past year. And this year, the winner was the actual play movement, the sort of general term for uh, all of those people who are live streaming or uh, podcasting or uh, vidcasting their play sessions. This I hadn't realised what a big thing this had become. Uh, Role-playing games as a spectator sport and uh, you know people sharing their play sessions online has become a huge thing. And I think this is um, part of what has uh, reawakened the interest in role-playing games. And uh, as you've said, RuneQuest is coming back. Um, Sadly, now without Greg Stafford, uh, he'll be very greatly missed. Um, Vampire the Masquerade's getting a new edition and and so on and so forth. Uh, D&D 5 looks like it's going to go well. Pathfinder 2 is in... uh, in testing i think now so yeah there's a lot going on we'll have to see whether this uh, renaissance lives up to its uh, its original promise but uh, it's looking very very good so far well thank you very much and thank you for giving us uh, such a wonderful tour of your career come back uh, in the future when you're doing uh, more work more great work but until then thank you very much well thanks for having me it's uh, it's been great talking to you uh, thank you white dwarf Wolfrup, The Adventures. With the release of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplaying at the back end of 1986, Games Workshop gave the scenario writers of White Dwarf a rich, atmospheric setting in which to immerse their adventures. The grimy, crime-ridden streets of the Empire were tailor-made for intrigue, mystery and conflict. Looming large in the background, of course, casting its accursed shadow was the Enemy Within campaign. This epic quickly grew to epitomise the approach and theme of the game as a whole, the insidious, hidden corruption of society by the malign forces of chaos. I think Games Workshop realised that they were onto something special with this campaign, and I imagine the Nottingham studio was a hotbed of plans and ideas. 
so much so that these themes and ideas spilled over into many White Dwarf scenarios. If they weren't directly tied to the enemy within campaign itself, they were heavily influenced by it. The first two proper adventures out of the gate were Night of Blood by Jim Bambra and Eureka by Paul Hargreaves. Jim Bambra, of course, was one of the main writers of The Enemy Within campaign, so Night of Blood, despite its relatively simple setup, is dripping with atmosphere and redolent of the unmistakable stench of chaos. During their travels, the player characters are caught outside at night as a fierce storm closes in with the perilous beasties abroad to ensnare the unwary traveller. What are the player characters to do? Luckily, the hooded man in offers shelter. But are the innkeeper and his retinue who they claim to be? And just what is going on down in the cellar? The adventure was a great introduction to the main themes of Wufferup and gave the players an early indication of the kinds of perils they would come to face in the Empire. The lonely inn, surrounded by anonymous forest while the storm raged outside, also reminded me of Hammer Horror, and gave the scenario a very distinctive feel. It was also elevated by some evocative artwork from the great Russ Nicholson, whose distinctive style perfectly suited Wolfrup. Are you listening, Cubicle 7? The corruption in Eureka, meanwhile, was of the human sort, as the PCs were hired as bodyguards to defend an eccentric inventor from the threats of a well-connected protection racket. While this adventure felt a bit scripted in places, nevertheless there were some good opportunities for some madcap chases, and the characters could have fun investigating the various Heath Robinson-like creations of Herr Wolfgang Krugelschreiber. A joke for our German-speaking listeners there. The finale was a neat twist on the Gringles pawn shop, with the play characters having to sneak out of the house, evading the attackers trying to break in. And then, in issue 94, came a real masterpiece. Graham Davis's A Rough Night at the Three Feathers. Over one tumultuous night, seven different storylines collided in the Three Feathers Inn, with a host of different characters rushing from one part of the inn to another. This had elements of a British farce, but instead of Brian Ricks with his trousers round his ankles, we had nobles engaged in illicit affairs, smugglers, thieves, chaos cultists, of course, bounty hunters and a legal retinue en route to a trial by combat. More or less all of human life in the Empire. A proposed timeline for the night was given, with multiple plot lines meshing together like precision clockwork. However, there was no chance of the player characters just being passive observers to the events. The plenty of hooks were given to pull the player characters into the action. Indeed, Graham Davis positively encouraged the GM to throw a spanner, in the form of the PCs, into the works, to make interesting things happen. There was an abundance of riches here. Running all seven plots at once required a skilful GM to manage, but even just putting two or three together made for a very satisfying adventure setup, and gave the scenario a high level of replayability. And, of course, this being Graham Davis, as well as a quality adventure, you could always count on the appearance of a gnome, and some fantastic names. Top of the pile being 
Baron Otto von Dammenblast. The format of the adventure, eschewing the usual map plus room descriptions formula, and instead employing a timeline with accompanying NPC descriptions, seemed innovative at the time and appeared to be quite influential. Several subsequent Wolfrup scenarios in White Dwarf use the same structure. A classic. It's no surprise that the scenario is being revamped and reissued for the new 4th edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Matt Connell and Jim Bambra combined a couple of issues later to bring us Mayhem at the Mermaid, a barroom brawl for Wolfrup, and this appeared to be something of a white dwarf tradition, following in the footsteps of Louis Pulsifer and Michael Kuhl, this time with a brawl decamped from Apple Lane to Altdorf. The inn provided plenty of tables, chairs and other assorted furniture for characters to use as improvised weapons. Although this being Wolfrup, even the armed with a large table, they'd probably still spend most of the time swinging and missing. Plenty of the characters were provided each with a juicy motivation to allow players to indulge in some over-the-top role-playing in between the mindless violence. My favourite was the noble who'd come out for an evening's entertainment of insulting commoners. I have to say, though, I don't remember the text being quite so small when I read it 30 years ago. With the Enemy Within campaign proving so popular with gamers, it was no surprise that the next two Wolfrup scenarios in White Dwarf were both set within that campaign. The Greats of Wrath by Carl Sargent and Derek Norton was a follow-on from Death on the Reich and featured a nice, ripe plot of infidelity and familial revenge. Although this being Wolfrup, the malign influence of chaos also meant the inclusion of floating skulls, making for a sticky situation for the citizens of Pritstock. The scenario was very well structured, designed to be easy for the GM to run. The town itself was like a mini sandbox, but the timeline, together with his PCs being up against a ticking clock, kept the adventure moving forward to an entertaining conclusion. Sad to note that at the time of writing this, Carl Sargent's death was announced. His reputation for writing quality RPG scenarios and later for authoring many fine solo game books will ensure that he's fondly remembered by gamers everywhere. Philip Wells's The Ritual was an alternative opening scenario for The Enemy Within. It was a heady brew of scaven, human cultists, bizarre rituals, daring rescues and high explosives and did serve as a great introduction to Wolfrup, covering as it did so many of the touchstones of the game. It strikes me that just as the presence of Brew or Morakanth in an adventure mean that you can only be in Glorantha, so the Scaven instantly transport you to the dank sewers of the Empire, filling your nostrils with the stench of rot and chaos as the heart of society is slowly being gnawed from the inside out. Once again, some sublime and at times gruesome Ross Nicholson art added to the atmosphere and meant that this was an adventure not to be missed. Many people see issue 100 of White Dwarf as the turning point when the magazine turned its back on RPGs and fully embraced the more lucrative wargaming miniatures market. Q exclamations of 
the great betrayal from assorted grugnards. That issue, though, did include a hefty Wolfrup scenario, The Floating Gardens of Barb Elon, by Basil Barrett. Written for a competition run on Games Day, 1987, this was a departure from the Wolfrup scenarios that had gone before. Set in Lusteria, the old world South America, it had the PCs playing a band of pygmies. Hmm, it was the 80s, I suppose. Investigating the floating gardens of the eponymous mage. As you can probably tell from the title, it was played mainly for laughs, with the puns dialed up to 11. But there was still opportunity for some good role-playing, particularly with the two rival shaman in the party, neither of whom could acknowledge the other in any way. The adventure itself was an against-the-clock dungeon crawl and was pretty tough with it. A sign of the times, though, it was designed to be played with Games Workshop's dungeon floor plans, and if the scenario didn't exactly insist that you brought them, it hinted at it a few times. Games Workshop? Hard sell? Surely not. It always struck me that with some effort from the Games Master, this uh, adventure could be diverted from its jokey tone and recast as an investigation into the tantalising hints left behind by the ancient mysterious race, the Old Slan. But then again, everyone likes a good pun. Post-issue 100, Wolfrup scenarios did still appear amongst the Warhammer 40k and Blood Bowl. But reading these issues now, you can see that Wolfrup was slowly but surely being phased out. The writing was on the wall. One sign of this was the introduction of Complete Encounters. These weren't full scenarios, but more of a NPC and setting combination to be used as an adventure seed. They contained some nice ideas, but lacked the heft of a full-blown scenario. It felt as though something was lacking. And after publishing half a dozen or so, they were dropped from the magazine completely. Oh well. At least in one of them, Carl Sargent gave us the memorable gnome detective, Alphonse Hercules de Gascoigne. Two further proper scenarios were released. The Affair of the Hidden Jewel by Lewis Page did what it said on the tin as the PCs hunted down for a stolen jewel, encountering various wanted outlaws as they did so. Enjoyable enough, but scripted in places and the storyline made several assumptions about what the players would think. A dangerous as experience would indicate players hardly ever think what you'd expect. And Graham Davis gave us one more adventure. There's a one-eyed fellow hiding in the south of Katmandun. The scenario was built round the Firma, an interesting creature from the rule book that was largely underused elsewhere. This gave this adventure a distinctive and welcome edge. And the setting, Misty Marshes west of Middenheim, was atmospheric. Defending the nearby village, added a magnificent seven flavour to the proceedings, even if it was suggested that, uh, block your ears, role players, you handled the conflict using the Warhammer Fantasy Battle rules, hint, hint, available from your local games workshop store. And so, to the last issue of White Dwarf I bought, 106. And one final surprise of Wolfrup 
solo adventure. As far as I'm aware, the only one published for the first edition. Night of Mystery was written by Carl Sargent and involved you tracking down a stolen item in the village of Grimminghagen. The familiar fighting fantasy structure was used with an added race against time mechanic as an extra feature. Could you find the stolen relic before the village was overrun by extremely unpleasant dead stuff? All of the staples of Wolfrup were present and correct. Plenty of suspicious villages, the unmistakable taint of chaos, and several ways for your character to come to a grisly end. Highly enjoyable, with some evocative illustrations by Paul Bonner to complement the narrative. This was a fitting final word for Wolfrup in White Dwarf. Yes, I know that technically there were features in later issues, but I didn't buy them, so they don't count. Open Box! Welcome to Open Box, part of the podcast where we look back to look forward. Last time we opened the box with Graham Davies. This time I'm with Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Warhammer. Mm. Open the box. It's difficult for us to open the box, isn't it? Because it's not a game that we play. We didn't have the box. We didn't have the box. Hold the box. Well, I did have the box, didn't I? I had the first... The first, I had the very, 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 very first Warhammer, the tabletop Warhammer, didn't I? Yeah. I bought that and was underwhelmed by it. And that's the one that has the great uh, John Blanche Yeah, cover. the cover's good. The box cover's great. I think that's probably what seduced me into buying it when I was, I don't know, would I have been? About 15 or something like that? Yeah. Um, but the game inside is was very, very disappointing, I felt. Yeah, it, it was like a typeset differently than the other yeah look, it was like three three booklets they went they did the kind of traveler model didn't they <laughs> three three black booklets um and it wasn't this wasn't so much the look i think it was just the fact that it was uh it was essentially a tabletop war game it wasn't a role-playing game but there was this odd role-playing element tagged on where you could play a character within a battle i think and the only thing I remember of it is it had a joke in it about uh, lightning, you know, the uh, little stuff that you oh, yeah, the, the weird, Yeah, the green About reindeers stuff. eating it because it's in proliferation. And is that right? Yeah. Don't put a reindeer near your model railway then. <laughs> You've had it. <laughs> and I remember the scenario being the ziggurette of doom. Yeah. I think that's a sign of a poor game. The only thing you can remember is a joke that was in it. <laughs> I mean, you know, not a very good one at that. But it, but it's an odd, it was an odd game. I, and in, in fairness, it didn't. now we've played uh, Warhammer, new and old, yeah. it, it doesn't bear much resemblance to no. Warhammer, the role-playing game. But it, I remember it was, it, was disappoint, it was a disappointing game, I think, the very, very first one for me. Yeah, here I've got in front of me here, White Dwarf 82, October 1986. Are you ready? Yeah. Inside, there's a pull-out oh, with all the illustrations from the uh, from the book, and it's mm. saying that it's forthcoming, it's going to be 1495, and it's got this description here. Are you cool. ready? A game in which the player characters are plunged into a brooding medieval world where nightmares come true. And malignant entities stalk darkened streets. Now, that description is right up our darkened yeah, streets. Yeah, it is, yeah. So, yeah. how come we've remained immune to it for so long? 
I think it's, it's more than this, but I think part of it was because that first incarnation of it, the tabletop incarnation, yeah. was so disappointing. In my mind, I thought that the role-playing game would be very similar to that and would therefore be equally disappointing. I think that very first version of it put me off a bit. I think it runs a bit deeper than that, but that's certainly part of it for me. Yeah, I, I kind of thought fourteen ninety nine. Is it going to be as rubbish as that box one that I bought? And it seemed very associated with miniatures as well, didn't it? I, it? Yes. Yeah. I don't think I entirely differentiated between the fantasy battle game and the role playing game. Yes. I, I did think that, it was all about that's, miniatures. That's a, yes, that's part of it as well. That we um, we'd long since given up on using miniatures because we use the. Uh, Theatre of the Mind. It was more about figures. Yeah. And there was a kind of weird blurring of, as you say, tabletop battle games and it, the role-playing game in our minds. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was part of it. I think it ran... It, but there were other things as well, though. By then, we were settled on our games, weren't we? Yeah. We were settled on our games. And if someone had given you 1499... The first question you would ask is, why didn't you just give us 15 quid? Yeah. Round it up. <laughs> but if they'd given, given you 14 yeah, you or I would not have bought that game. What we no. would have spent it on is a supplement for RuneQuest or Stormbringer or Traveller or uh, whatever else. And, and I think by then we were, we were playing... Uh, quite a bit of advanced D&D. &D. Advanced D&D, &D, We were yeah. playing that. So I think we would have spent it on something for those games we were settled on rather than a new game. See, I, I, have, a different, I have a different memory of this than you because I think that this... Uh, Are you suggesting memory is unreliable? I am suggesting it is unreliable. That is a very... Yeah. That's a bad thing. Don't mention that in this podcast. I think uh, <laughs> by, uh, by this time in the autumn of uh, 86, I was working. You were at college. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I probably had... Fourteen pounds ninety five. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wasn't spending it on that. I was no. spending it on beer and trying to find a girlfriend and uh, on <laughs> records. <laughs> spending fourteen ninety nine and trying to find a girlfriend. Oh, going to places did where want I more, may. Did he want more money than that? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, going to places where that <laughs> may yeah. happen. Yes. yes, there was a bit of that going on as well. Yeah, yes. By Life this point, outside gaming. Yeah, we kind of yeah. we moved away from. Uh, that part of it. The other thing that, um, you know, having played the game, and we'll talk a bit about that a bit more, is that the most appealing thing is the setting, isn't it? The medieval, grim and dark setting. Yeah. That was our default setting for everything anyway. It was really, yeah. We, 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 yeah, we liked things gritty, miserable, grim. Yeah. I mean, whether because we were playing in Bolton, I don't know. Maybe yeah. there's something going on there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I think that's even even uh, our Plorantha had um, dirt underneath its feet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't kind of. Uh, we weren't hero questing, were we, or no. anything like that. It was more grim, clanking dark, around, dirty, yeah, yeah. murdering lunar soldiers in the dead of night kind of thing, wasn't it? And when our default setting for um, uh, Tones and Trolls was much the same way. Yeah. And at this point in 86, this was when we were doing the Postal game, mm. and that very much was a medieval setting, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Using the RuneQuest system. So, yeah. you know, the, the most appealing bit of Warhammer is its setting, 
but it was already a setting that we were familiar with. It was, yeah, yeah. But going back to your point, I mean, what you, your memory of it and my memory of it are actually very similar in the sense that because you're right, we were playing, uh, we, we were doing things outside of gaming, spending our money on other things, but we were still gaming, and it was it was that it, it was a case of because we were doing other things, we didn't have room for another game. We had our games that we were playing, yes. and we didn't have room yeah. for something else. I couldn't be bothered. I suppose I couldn't really be bothered learning the rules. It was yeah. that thing you look at a look at a, a big rule book and think, Oof, you know, another one. Well, I've, I've learnt the rules to these games, and that's what we're doing. There's yeah. no room for anything else. So you're right. It was about doing other things, but equally, because there wasn't room for another game, because we were doing other things. No, we played it. We played uh, two editions. We played yes. the first edition, mm. the first part of the Enemy Within uh, campaign, yeah. Mistaken Identity. Yeah. And we also played the fourth edition. Yeah. So let's talk about the, f the first edition and how that went and what you, you've, your thoughts on that. I enjoyed the uh, scenario, Mistaken Identity. I thought that was um, a nice little scenario. No spoilers, but um, with, with some nice twists in it. Um, and you can see, perhaps, back in the day, how people would have really liked that adventure. Yeah. I don't know if innovative is the right word, but it plays around with your expectations, I think. Yeah. The innovation certainly comes from the construction of the adventure yeah. rather than the mechanics of yeah. the rule set. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked about the rule set in some detail last time, didn't we? But yeah. to me, it's always been the case that it's a game that emerged from everything that was uh, existing at that yeah, time. It's a yeah, bit, it's a sort of Frankenstein's monster game, isn't it, that steals from, sorry, borrows from uh, lots of other games. Yeah. yeah. Percentage systems, hit locations from yeah. basic role-playing. So it's a bit like uh, Progressive Rock in the 70s. It <laughs> took yeah. all, all yeah. the elements that were yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Wrong, uh, yeah. and went with it. So, you know, you've yeah. got... Um, you know, you've got the career system from travel emerging with the yeah. um, with elements of D and D all blended in. Yeah, yeah, uh, in, in and and of course a bit of Cthulhu as well. Yes, because of course it, it, it's it, that the, the grim, dark, unspeakable horrors lurking in dark alleys and that kind of thing, um, and magic being seen, viewed with suspicion. All those sorts of things are yeah, um, are very much. And that's something I was not I was not aware of until no. we started playing. No, I wasn't really. I just thought it was a standard fantasy game with a bit of a um slightly dark, grimy setting, but not but the Cthulhu thing comes across quite strongly, doesn't it? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Very dangerous as well. It's a very deadly game. Yeah. You know. Which again sorta of comes from RuneQuest, although it's more deadly because people don't have healing. But uh, having played it. I suppose it begs the question, did, did we, do we feel now that we missed out? And a little bit of me thinks perhaps we did a bit. Yeah. Because I think we would have enjoyed it. I think we would have really enjoyed it. I think we were put off for all those reasons we've just discussed. But I think if we'd, if we'd bought it and played it, we would have enjoyed it at the time. Yeah. So it's available now, isn't it? So we played the fourth edition yeah. um, with a, an adventure of uh, Gaz's devising. Mm. But with familiar, uh, similar elements to the enemy within campaign, because yeah, yeah, it yeah. felt 
yeah, got like twists and turns in it and things that you're not expecting, yeah. And very much uh, lots of sausages involved. Lots of sausages, yeah. And it's similar, it is very similar, it's not hugely different, is it? No. Um, it does a kind of more, the, the resolution is more of a sort of a pause roll thing, isn't it? Yeah. Degrees of success, isn't that rather than just a straight. If the first edition game, it seems like a it's just a straightforward percentage system, isn't it? Yeah. But in the newer version, it's percentages, but the degree of success versus the opponent kind yeah. of thing, which makes well, it a bit more made it feel even more deadly actually, because my character I think got a in a duel, my character got a really good level of success against a guy who got. a really bad role and he was basically gone in one round he was just run through wasn't he that yeah. was the, that was the end of that yeah. you know so it makes him more deadly in a sense yeah because I, I think I mean we didn't experience this playing the first edition game but I know that people have reported that um, combat would go on and on and on and on because you're uh, doing that to in and fro but yeah. there was none of that in the fourth edition no, no. as you say no. because it's a, an opposed role and you, you could actually fail and still succeed, succeed to some extent yes. because yes. your opponent might yeah. fail worse than you therefore yes. you turn that failure into success yeah yeah um, so combat was over quite quickly yeah it was over quickly and it, it, it that degree of success re resolved that problem of a percentage that you keep missing yeah so being 35 percent with something is um not very good but if if you're fighting someone who's got 35 percent and it's an opposed role it yeah, it resolves much quicker. But it's not huge. I don't think it's hugely different. It didn't seem, feel hugely different as a game. It's felt very much this, along the same sort of continuum, if you like. And what I think uh, came out of it, and we've mentioned the setting previously, were I've always seen it uh, as a generic set, setting. It is actually quite tightly defined yes. in its ways. Yeah. It? It's more yeah. European... It's a particular point in time, isn't it? It's particular, yes. And that somehow, the system and the setting go very well together because that brutal, deadly combat system somehow fits in with this rather brutal, deadly, grim world. Yeah. Um, and it's not, it isn't. What surprised me was it's... Um comic tone so it yeah. deals with the grotesques doesn't it but yeah. it doesn't set out to be humorous it's just the way that it frames things to some extent that I mean again putting it in the context of back in the day that you could argue that's one of its strengths that it it was a fantasy game that was the opposite of D&D &D. so it does it's like D&D &D, but through the looking glass almost where everything isn't quite as it should be but I think back in the day, we assumed, oh, Games Workshop have invented a bog-standard fantasy game. And I don't think it is bog-standard. I think it's a very, um, it's very much its own thing, isn't it? As you say, the settings kind of sort of feels very distinctive. Yeah. Uh, and the, the mechanics are quite well suited to the setting. Having played it now, and you, you say, you know, have we missed it? Mm. Um, do you, can you see us playing it? Because it, this is the thing that struck me about it that, you know, we're in a position now, aren't we, like they were, you know, we've been doing this podcast for three years. Mm. Okay. What's becoming apparent is that uh, our gaming time is finite. We're pushing it to the limit, the amount of gaming we can get in. Yes. Yeah? Mm. And 
without um, serious FPO explosion, <laughs> we are at risk of pushing our luck too far. Yes, yeah. true. Yeah. So when we're going through and, and, and charting a course through the past, yeah. we've been dealing with stuff that we're familiar with and we're uncovering treasures mm. that we didn't play. So we've got this one, mm. this game. And I'm quite keen to add it to yeah, our repertoire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've enjoyed it, yeah. But how can we? It's the opposite of the 80s. When we, instead of going out looking for girls, we're trying to avoid them. <laughs> or avoid their wrath. Or women. doesn't have to be a girl. Could have to be a woman, could be a man. In our case, it's a woman. Yeah. Just for the sake of. Well, we are on the internet, aren't we? Yeah, that's true. Uh, yes. So, yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. There is that problem of. And also, not, not just. I mean, even if you can find the time to play a game. So, you can find the time to play lots of games. There's always that question, isn't there, of depth and breadth, isn't there? Yeah. So, you could, you could play. Yeah, we could get a couple of games of Warhammer in next year, as I'm sure. But. Do you really feel you experience it properly if you only play a couple of games of it? Yeah. You know, part of the attraction with all... I always say this, but part of the attraction with all role-playing games is the fact that you can play them uh, over a long period of time and you can do campaigns and you can do the same, play the same character for a long time and develop a character. But, of course, the longer you're doing that, you're just playing one game. Yeah. You're not playing a breadth of games. So how, how do you spend that finite resource of uh, gaming time that you've got yeah, and plan a course through all the past that we're discovering mm. and the stuff that's coming so already we've, you know, over the last yeah, couple of yeah, months we've got a new rune quest yeah. new warhammer coming in so with all that stuff out yeah. there yeah. How, how you, how you make, do, there is too much it's a case of be careful what you wish for. Yes. Because back in the 80s, you know, we had this hunger and desire for new stuff to come out so that we could uh, yeah. get it. But now it's just everywhere. Yeah. I think the answer is just don't buy any of it. <laughs> just don't buy it. Ignore it. <laughs> ignore all the Kickstarters. Ignore all of it. Ignore all of it. See, stop. Just stop now. But it's difficult to ignore, <laughs> isn't it? It's difficult to yeah, ignore. Of course it is, yeah, yeah. It is difficult to ignore because mm. discovering uh, Warhammer and this, this desire to play it has made me reflect. You know, you, you go onto Drive Through RPG yeah. and you've got everything there. Everything's there, and, and more to the point, everything's there at a reasonable price. So you can get a PDF relatively cheaply and suss a game out, can't you? You know? Yeah. Yeah, that that as well. So you don't have to pay forty or fifty quid for the hardback. You can pay fifteen quid or fourteen ninety nine, perhaps, yeah. for the uh, for the PDF. And that's very tempting because you you then want to dip your toe in lots of things, you know. In so, in some ways, you see, cost is a factor, isn't it? And if a game's very very expensive, um, so it's like the new version of Numenera. They've, they've done a new version. And I think the slipcase with two volumes is about 100 and odd pounds. Now, sorry, Monty Cook. I ain't going to be buying that. That's a lot of money. I'm not going to be buying it because I've got Numenera. I've got the first edition. I'm fine with it. But if, if new game, <laughs> ironically, that, that's maybe not a bad thing because it stops me buying it. Whereas if things are cheap and accessible on drive through as a PDF, well, I might be tempted to have a look at it. I might yeah. look at that, 
you know, before you know it, you're getting excited about a new game. Yeah. And you've got the time to play it. And as we said, you know, we buy stuff to play it. Yeah. Um, but when there's everything that's ever been done mm. and yeah. new stuff appearing, yeah. you know, how do you, how do you start with that? How do you... I don't think you can. The thing is, you, you can't, can you? It's a simple fact. You, you have to find a way to steer a course through it one way or another. Yeah. I'm not sure how, but whether you are, I don't know, weird rules. I, I'm going to buy one new game a year. Something like that, two new games a year. Well, this is this is this is the thing I think is part of the reason why people are drawn to the nostalgia that we cover mm. in this podcast because people are nostalgic to a time where it was curated for you. So yeah. you might be furrowing the same um, area. So White Dwarf would be telling you that this is the game to play. Yeah, and uh, people would go to it because it'd been picked. Yeah, it's been handpicked for you, like yeah. Yeah, and yeah. you knew that it was, mm. it was there. And you trusted, you trusted them. I mean, maybe you shouldn't have done, but but generally, you trusted White Dwarf to provide you, as you say, curate and provide you with this is worth playing. This is worth, you know, yeah, worthy of your attention, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, as we've discovered doing these podcasts. It's kind of untrue because there was a house mag. They were essentially saying we yeah. we stock this. This is we stock. This is good because we stock it. This isn't so good, but we don't stock that. So ignore that because we don't stock it. Buy this because we stock it. So yeah, it, it, it didn't. It wasn't really like that. But it, but you're right. It felt like that. It yeah, felt we, it felt like you were being offered things. And I suppose you could argue, you could argue you're being charitable. So let's be charitable. You could argue that they stocked it because they thought it was good. Yeah. They stocked it because they thought it was worth stocking, as opposed to things they didn't stock that they thought like perhaps not that good. So yeah. you, you, even if White Dwarf was was kind of peddling what they stocked, you're right. It was still giving a kind of seal of approval of sorts. I don't mind being reassuringly manipulated. I think that's what I'm saying, and I think no. part of the difficulty. Part of, the, part of the difficulty now is you don't quite know who you're being manipulated by. So well, That's never pleasant. No. I like to know who's manipulating Exactly. Me. Exactly. So Even if they're doing it in a reassuring way. In, in an internet environment. <laughs> yeah. 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 There are people telling you what to play, aren't they? Mm. You know, Kickstarter. Oh yeah, events. there's there's the world's and, and also full of sort of idiots like us, I suppose, on podcasts telling yeah. you what they think of things. Yeah. With no absolutely no expertise whatsoever. Exactly. No critical no faculty. Crit critical faculties. <laughs> no expertise. Just a pair of idiots. The, the you are being you are being shown what's available yes. on the podcasts yeah, yeah. out there. Yeah. And mm. uh, but everybody's head is pointing to the same direction. Yes, the latest thing, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You do. You get these periods on social media 
uh, and here and there where something comes out and everyone's like, "Oh, this is good, Ooh, isn't this it? Is good. Yes, this uh, is great. This is a must-have." Yeah, and then till till next week, and then suddenly it's not a must-have. Yeah, everyone's moved on. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking of like Blades in the Dark last year. Yeah. Blades in the Dark yeah, came out. Yeah. There was like a flurry of, uh, yeah, yeah. oh yeah, you know, everybody's going to yeah. play. Let's interview the people who produced it. Let's, uh, you know, uh, look at it. Oh, and Twitter was alive with it. Look at that. And then it burnt out. Mm. And uh, the, you can point to loads of things, can't you? That, that you happened. can, and that, that's the problem with there's a kind of disconnection between the experience that you, is being pushed at you or you're experiencing on social media or on the internet or wherever and your own personal experience so it's like say with Blades in the Dark Blades in the Dark is a good good little game and there's a lot of material in it uh, and you could play it for a long long time with a group of friends and so that initial excitement about it that then peters out if you've got the game you can still be playing that this what I mean is that there's a kind of twin track thing, isn't there? That everyone's talking about the latest thing, but you bought the latest thing six months ago, and you can still be playing that and enjoying that. Yeah. In a perfectly legitimate way, there's like a disconnection between what's going on in the world of game. Let's call it the world of gaming. Yeah. And what's going on at your kitchen table on a Friday night playing a game with your friends. Yeah. Because what you're playing might not be the thing that the world of gaming is raving about yeah and that's the this is what i said earlier i think this is that you have to make a decision don't you to say no i like this and i like that and i like this and i'm not going to let my head be turned constantly because if you did i don't know what you'd just be buying stuff all the time and never really playing anything for that long would you no, no. and that in a way that you're missing out on one of the joys of role-playing games because a role-playing game has that playability, doesn't it? Yeah. It, you can keep playing these things for a long, long time. And there's all sorts of permutations about how you would play them, what character class you play, what kind of adventure you're doing, all that kind of stuff. With, but that sits at odds with this constant head-turning of, here's the latest thing, here's a new thing, here's another new thing. Why don't you back this thing? It's a new thing. And it, but, but in a way, that's not what role-playing games are really that's not a really how they work is no. it so great, may, great role-playing games are games that you you will play for a long long time with your friends the yeah. same game so maybe maybe the biggest service that white dwarf gave is and maybe i'm wrong maybe the nostalgia isn't for um white dwarf hand-picking what to play each month it was the fact that they gave you the they facilitated you playing it by providing scenarios and mm, yeah, um, yeah. articles you know as, as daily dwarfs covered in this for uh, uh, warhammer perhaps it exists beyond the rule book you know the, yeah, the people's yeah, yeah. experience yeah. of it yeah. was through the stuff that the they, they gave you yeah yeah, yeah. And anyway that, that that was the thing that's what they did they, they provided scenarios and articles and clarifications and new ideas for a relatively small set of games AD&D, RuneQuest, eventually Cthulhu, um, Traveller. And at this time, like, Paranoia. A bit Paranoia, a bit, bit, but not much, not not much. And they would provide you with lots and lots of material for a relatively small number of games. But in a way, I suppose it's the, um, 
it's the cleft stick, is that the right phrase that role the role playing industry has always found itself in. You know, it it's always found itself in that situation where you only need this game, you only need this rule book, and you can go away and play this game for a long, long time without buying anything else. Yeah. So it's got that problem, hasn't it? Of it's either got to sell you lots of supplements. Or it's got to create a new game that sounds exciting, more exciting than the one you're playing. Yeah. Buy this one instead. Not a game you're playing that you've been playing for a few weeks or a few months, where there's something new come along that looks even more exciting. So why don't you buy this? That's the industry has to create things. You can understand that, can't you? Because they're not going to stay in business if they don't. Yeah. Or re reissuing old classics. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Cool. But I do think from a, from a personal perspective you, you've just got to try and find your way through it haven't you yeah and make decisions that i'm not i'm just not going to buy some of this stuff unless you're a, unless you're a collect unless you collect them if you collect people some people do don't they? They, yeah. they collect them and that's fair enough but if you're interested in playing them and you're buying them to play i, I certainly always look at a new game and think yeah would would i play this yeah and, and, and also not just would i play it but I do think cost comes into it as well. Yeah. And and the way it's... So you do get games that are produced and they're quite expensive. And I know I take the point uh, that I think Gaz made when we were at Expo, talking to Gaz at Expo. Y you can pay 50 or 60 quid for a game. You can pay 50 or 60 quid to watch a gig these days and it's over in an hour and a half. Yeah. So in a sense, it's value for money. But it's still mounts up doesn't it yeah particularly if you spend 50 pounds on a rule book and then there's a, another 30 pounds on an on a another supplement that you think well, that's kind of essential and then they release another one at 30 pounds and another one and before you know it you feel you've got to buy all these things yeah. that that's a factor in deciding whether to, to buy a new game whereas going back to blazing the dart but blazing the dart's one book 25 quid and that's really all you need yeah, and there's other games like that as well. Yeah, because it's uh, in a similar position we were in uh, 1986. There are other demands. You know, you can say that uh, it's the same price of a gig, but I'm going to gigs as well. Yeah, so, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, so that's in, true. Yeah, you know, it, if you allow it to consume your uh, hobby budget and your pastime yes. budget, yeah. it takes over, doesn't it? Yes, it does. That's that's true. It's not like you're not going to gigs and not having and not having a curry every now and again. You you are and buying the gigs. <laughs> True. That that said, right? That said, I have got the uh, rule book. I bought the f fourth edition. Mm. Did you know that? I did know that. Yeah, yeah. You did mention it. So I was thinking of staging an intervention, but I thought it's your money. Do we lie with it? So I bought <laughs> it. it means we're we're going to have to going to have to play it. Mm. So how does that feel? <laughs> does that does that feel um, in our finite space of uh, time we'll have in two thousand and nineteen, for example? Yeah. Do well, you, I, I think the way we carve it up it doesn't really bother me because I think the way we carve it up is the decision is who's running the game, isn't it? So the the games we play are defined by who's running it. So you'll run some games next year, and I'll run some games next year. And we'll both be involved in those games. But it's sort of the person running it says, well, I'm going to run this. And they're right, that's what we're doing then. 
But given what you've said, th- uh, let me phrase the question in a different way. The time we've got is finite to play. I bought uh, Warhammer 4th edition. Mm. What's going to be bumped? What would you, of my repertoire of <laughs> Your game, repertoire. Of my repertoire, what would you like me to bump to play that? <laughs> or would you say, no, don't play it next year? I think of some of the rubbish you've run. Um, <laughs> This is part of the problem. I like it too much. I like role-playing games Someone's too much. Go. Someone's know, got to go. You've know, got to make a decision. That. I've got to make a decision. I know that, but I like it all too much. I, I logged on to play Pope Cthulhu when I was away from my wedding anniversary. You did. Yeah. Oh, that's the man with a problem. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I said, oh, what the problem is? Is the problem role-playing or is the problem that my wife didn't mind? <laughs> I'm not sure. What's the bigger problem there? So, so you were playing online from a hotel, from a hotel room on my wedding anniversary evening, because they didn't want to miss out on the game of Pope Cthulhu. That's that's something help. So I'm not I'm not the right man to ask what what can be bumped because I don't know. All I would say is they just we'll just try and squeeze in Warhammer. We'll squeeze it in. You say time's finite, is it? I'm not sure it is. I'm sure there's philosophical positions that say it's not. Well, when we get our here. time's finite, I give you that. But I don't think time's finite. <laughs> if we can find a way of our time not being finite, we'll be okay. Essentially, immortality. <laughs> Keep playing forever. There will be no problem then. Well, it's been suggested that um, we club together and use Patreon funds to Time. invest in a, in a retirement home <laughs> called Dungroggin. Uh, where all the old grognards can uh, get together and Mm. play these games. (laughs) That's more or less what we recreate at Grogmeet, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) So, um, next time when we get together in the room of role-playing rambling, we'll be reflecting on the year and looking at the um, year ahead. I might ask you this question again when it comes to New Year's resolutions. About what I have to bump? Something's got to give, yeah. That's Psy World. Let's not play that. That but, looks rubbish. But that looks brilliant. It looks rubbish. Until next time. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks once again to Graham for joining us. Talking to him now is much like reading him back in the day. I feel like I've learned something new and keen to run off in different directions, sourcing ideas and background material. Thanks too to the Smart Party for their help in putting this episode together. They may be releasing a Warhammer actual play session featuring me and Blythe. Make sure you subscribe to their feed if you don't already. In the next podcast we'll also feature some sample play from our Enemy Within session, Games Mastered by Asaka Soul from Twitter. Warhammer will also be featuring in the third Grogzine, which is due out in January 2019. All being well, hard copies of which will be posted to patrons as a thank you for their support, wherever they are in the world. If you are subscribed as a patron at the end of November 2018, you'll get a copy. Don't worry if you subscribe later, as you'll have access to the PDF. The podcast will always be free to listen to. The Patreon campaign is to help to cover some of the costs and allows us to do other projects, such as the Grogzine. The higher tiers above 
$3.5 a month, we'll also get some extras, such as the Collected Daily Dwarf Volume 3 and the all-new Judge Blythe Rules Book of Judgment. We're now actually getting perilously close to the next goal, don't tell Blythe, but it's a, an extra podcast episode where we discuss nostalgia, the details of games that we're currently playing. I'm sure we'll be fine with it if I ever get to that point. Thank you all for your generous support. It's really appreciated. And we've had some new recruits in September and October 2018, so I want to give a shout out to them. Joining at $1 a month is Jonathan Webb, Paul Blendell, Benjamin and Barry Ryan. Thanks. For those over $5 a month, I like to roll them a virtual gift from a table from the game under discussion. This time, I'm going to inflict damage from the critical tables from Warhammer 1st Edition on their enemies. First, it's Norman Beresford. Okay, let's roll. And that is a body blow. Your blow lands with some force on the groin. Your opponent is knocked to the ground. Next is Joseph Wolfenden Williams. Oh, it's a head blow. Your blow strikes a point in your opponent's jaw, forcing the jawbone upwards into the lower part of the brain. Your opponent must test against toughness or lose 10 points from each percentage characteristic as a result of lasting brain damage. Nice. Next is Videl Barros. Okay, Videl. There's a sickening crunch as your weapon smashes the bones of your opponent's forearm. Anything held in that hand is dropped and the arm below the elbow is incapacitated until medical attention is received. Okay, Chris Stevens has increased his pledge to $5. So let's have a look here. Okay, Chris, you've got a head as well. So your blow hits a neck, smashing the vertebrae. Your opponent falls to the ground and twitches for a couple of seconds and then lays still. Hmm. We've had some new people who've joined at the upper levels. Seven and a half dollars from Adrian Kelly. Thanks for Adrian. Your target's arm is smashed and an artery is severed. Anything held in the hand is dropped and the arm is incapacitated until medical attention is received. At uh, ten dollars a month, it's uh, Jim Mosley. Thanks Jim. You've got a body blow. Your blow smashes several ribs. Your opponent may do nothing for the next round. Okay. And finally, David Patterson. Oh, and you've got a head. Your opponent's head flies off in a random direction, landing 2d6 feet away. Thank you to all of you. When the zine goes out to the top level patrons, they'll get a certificate with their zine so they can show future generations what their virtual gift was. Now, if you follow me on Twitter, at the Grognard File, You'll know that we started recording this episode in a pub, but abandoned it because of the background noise and we were talking complete gibberish thanks to too much ale. However, I wanted to share this moment from when we were discussing drive through RPG, social media and the Spotifycation of RPG. So quite Fleetwood Mac, go your own way. Yeah. Find your own way through it. In the same way, Spotify's like, the music's like that, isn't it? If you've yeah. got all this music, what you've got to do is the onus is on you to say, hang on, I've got to find my way through this. Yeah, Otherwise, it, it's going to just swamp me, isn't it? But it's not, though, is it? It's not, though, because there's an algorithm pushing stuff your way, <laughs> saying, 
Oh, you want this? Oh, yeah, You the want this? The Ritz. I'm, I've noticed that you've looked at this, so you want this? That, that is the voice of an algorithm, that. Well, yeah. I imagine, that's what I imagine the algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. I'm an algorithm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You want yeah, this, you want you want this, this just, don't you? Yeah. It's the same with gaming. Next time, adios, amigos.